Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with Alex Bell, Andy Murray, and Anna Chizinski. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Andy. My fact is that scientists have developed barcodes for zebras. Mm. Not zebras. Uh, they've also developed a separate and identical system for zebras. Uh, okay. we get, we'll get on to how to say the name of the thing in a bit. But um, th- this is a team of scientists at Princeton. And uh, what they've done is this is a particular species of zebra called the Grevy's uh, zebra. And it's the rarest of the species of zebra. And they've persuaded volunteers to take 40,000 photos of uh, different animals and uh, the scientists have then used this software on them because they've all got completely unique stripe patterns and it combines barcode technology and facial recognition software. And so you can now identify an individual animal from it. Levin Skyra, who's been on uh, as a guest, um, he has a show in Belgium and one of the games, because when you go to a supermarket in Belgium, they give you a scanning gun to take around now so you can just scan as you go along <laughs> the items and then you hand the scan gun in at the end and then they tally up what do, you... Do you have to hand in your badge as well? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he, uh, he convinced the supermarket in allowing him to have him and his friends have barcodes printed up on t-shirts and they ran around the supermarket like laser quest and we're trying to scan each other's shirts and they had to collect all the kills as it were very cool. yeah amazing. very cool game and then at the end they were like well i got three zebras I don't know what <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's it's really i had no idea this is how it works but each gap and space combo is a number and so each digit is a combination of seven uh, black and white bars so yeah. to say one in a barcode it's white white black black white white black you put those all together, so it's slightly thicker, white and black bits, and that is the It's kind one. of like Morse code. Did you read the, yeah. about the guy who invented it and how he came up with it? Well, it was several people who kind of developed it, but one of the people uh, in charge of um, kind of developing the idea was a guy called Norman Joseph Woodland, and he was thinking about it when he was at the beach, and he uh, drew a sort of Morse code pattern in the sand, sort of by doing dots and dashes, uh, uh, poking them in the sand, and then pulled down those dots and dashes into bars and mm. came up with a barcode. Ah. But then the developers turned it into the shape of a bullseye. So the first barcodes are actually bullseyes. Oh, yeah. And it turned out they took up loads of space, didn't it? So it's actually much more efficient to just go with the long line. Yeah. Um, You know that guy, Joe Woodland, who you just mentioned, Alex, Mm. one of the pioneers? Supposedly, he came up with the idea indirectly because of the Atlantic City Mafia. Go on. Okay, so he he got the idea when he was at uh, Drexel University in Philadelphia, and he was doing a master's degree there. And he hadn't originally wanted to do a master's. He wanted to uh, start a business where he made a music system for lifts. Mm-hmm. But, and he wanted to set up this whole firm. And his father said, no, the mob control the music in lifts. You, in Atlantic City or on the east coast of the USA, you're not allowed to go into that because they'll, they'll get you. So instead he went off and did a master's and came up with a barcode instead. What Hang a on. weird industry to decide to control if you're the mafia. I think they had a whole range. They had, it wasn't just lift music that they controlled. That feels like it was really like the mobster's baby brother. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they needed to give him something. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen that in Venezuelan supermarkets since last year, you've had to scan in your fingerprints to get 
Wow. Why? To buy anything. Because, so you know, Venezuela's going through a very horrible time at the moment and there's a lot of food shortages. Um, and so the government's had to ration stuff and people have been panic buying things. Like they'll just buy in loads of grain or loads of cigarettes or whatever it is that they think the country's going to run out of. Um, and so in order to stop them doing that, supermarkets have installed fingerprint scanners. And when you buy something, you have to give, provide ID, you have to give your name, your address, your date of birth, and you have to scan in your fingerprint so they can make sure that you haven't been overbuying. Whoa. If you just oh want a God. loaf of bread. Um, I was looking into other animals with codes on. So uh, in um, 2010, farmers in Somerby painted QR codes onto their cows um, so that to try and raise awareness of their website, uh, this is dairyfarming.com. Well, uh, it's worked. <laughs> my God, best website ever. I spent all <laughs> afternoon on it. It's really good. <laughs> there's videos of uh, new dairy farm technology. There's a, there's a farmer's dairy diary, which I quite like. Did there's you read a, it? Cow, yeah, I did. Yeah, there's a cow of the month as well. A little profile on the cow of the month. Okay. That's really good. And there's, like, there's also like what it's like <laughs> to live as a cow and like you can follow the journey of milk. It's a really good site. I genuinely Wait, recommend so, it. So the cows are writing the diary? No, the cows make the videos. They put, they put, they put, um, they <laughs> well, put cameras on the cows and then the cows go around and make videos. Wow. Really? When you say yeah. make videos, what, the cows... They don't, edit. And they don't like edit and do anything <laughs> or something like that. I think they just gave a cow video camera. They did that recently. Did you see um, there's a small uh, island? I can't remember where it is, but they Google um, Street View has not got to them yet. And they're, they're quite furious because they've learned that Google Street View is a fantastic way about getting tourism because a lot of people just go, wow, this place looks amazing. We should go. So they've attached cameras, their own cameras, to the heads of, of sheep um, and goats and they just have them walk through and they've been taking photos so this whole island's being mapped wow. by sheep now but all sheep do is eat grass so presumably all you're seeing is this place is full of grass <laughs> full true. of yeah. real close ups of and also sheep follow grass. each other so you're just going to get a lot of the same pictures just yeah. a lot of sheep's bottoms and yeah. grass <laughs> yeah and tourism also, has plummeted and also unnaturally low down as well on the yeah it's, so it's not practical they're, no, they're not. yeah also on barcodes um, embryos are going to get them. They're developing these at the moment, and this is to stop baby swap disasters because you know there are always a few news stories every year where people end up with the wrong baby. But the barcode doesn't go on the embryo. Uh, it goes on the egg. One go. It goes on the egg or on the sperm. On the actual. Wow. Yeah. On the sperm. Oh, and it's can't barcode a sperm. Well, they're on it. It would be a nightmare to scan, apart from anything else. It kind of goes yeah. off five hundred million yeah. times. <laughs> Not anyone at one. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing about barcodes. When they were introduced uh, in the in the 70s, I think the first item bought with the UPC, which stands for Universal Product Code uh, System, was a bit of chewing gum. Mm -hmm. But it was really hard to introduce because obviously you need hundreds of products to have barcodes in order for it to be worth anyone's while. And mm -hmm. also, they didn't used to come on the packaging. So you used to get the food into the shop and then you would have to stick on the barcodes. Ah. The shopkeepers had to glue them onto the boxes, yes. and then you could scan them. I mean, that doesn't. That's not really that weird because yeah. a, a lot of reduced foods in supermarkets come with a fresh barcode that's a good for point. the reduced price. So yeah, of that. Um, but people were frightened of them initially in the seventies. People thought that they'd be blinded because there are lasers involved. Oh yeah, blinded by the scanners. By, by the, the scanners. Yeah, not I by think the if you scan of a barcode, that's a bit. Yeah, but it is quite alien, isn't it? If you're used to someone just ringing up goods at the till or, you know, a label which says 50p, this weird... I, mean, I don't I'm, know. I'm not frightened of them. I'd I like to make that very clear. <laughs> it was the 70s. We had, we'd landed on the moon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. Petrified. I don't think witchcraft. <laughs> People running out of supermarkets screaming. No, we landed on the moon before we had the barcode. Yeah. That's weird. That is odd. Yeah. 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 It feels like the moon is the, the landing is the last thing that sh we should do. Yes, it feels like we, in fact, I'm not sure we should have landed there yet, <laughs> even. 
Um, funny that you mentioned the devil because uh, the universal product code um, is part of a big devil conspiracy. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It begins and ends with uh, some sort of uh, easy identifying lines so that the, the lasers kind of know where the code begins and ends. And yeah. that resembles a 666 on either side. No, there is. There's a six and, and a six. Uh, there are three sixes throughout they're, they're the not, They're not quite sixes. They, they, ah. There are sixes as well in the barcode, obviously. Yeah. But at the beginning, they're just, they're just markers that look like sixes. They're not quite sixes. Okay. And there's a, uh, the guy who uh, developed the product code, uh, George Joseph Lara, has got a section on his website where he addresses this constant accusation. He <laughs> says, there's nothing sinister about this. They resemble sixes. It's simply a coincidence, like the fact that my first, middle, and last name all have six letters. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to ask me anything more about this, sacrifice a lamb on your lawn at midnight. He does say, I will not be answering any questions of this as of October 2000 or something. Yeah. He, there's a section on his yeah. website. Like the uh, video that, do you remember Ringo Starr? Oh yeah, peace Se- and love. Peace, peace and, and love, love, peace and love. I'm not answering any more fan mail as of this date. Peace and love, peace and love. The thing is, I genuinely believe that Ringo Starr gets quite a lot of fan mail, whereas I <laughs> really struggle to believe that this man is just inundated. <laughs> or if he is, it's the same two mad people and he can just block their addresses. <laughs> um, I was trying to look into how zookeepers identify different species of animals. Say they have a bunch in a cage and what do they do to do that? Um, sometimes they have training to teach them the difference between, say, a rabbit and a giraffe. Exactly. It's only the better resourced zoos, though. And I didn't find anything. But this is the only reason I wanted to mention this, is that um, there's a great hashtag that you can find on Twitter, which is hashtag zookeepers problems. And it's just really fun because zookeepers around the world just put up their problems. So a few I have here... Um, from Yummy Tees, at Yummy Tees. Uh, I have way too much lemur pee in my hair right now. Uh, from Jillian Erzar, uh, at Jillian Erzar, punched in the vag by a tortoise. Hashtag zookeeper problems. How <laughs> slow is Jillian? <laughs> um, zebras cause the most injuries to US zookeepers, uh, more than any other animal. Are those injuries caused when the zookeepers mispronounce their name so egregiously, just like Andy did earlier? Yeah, because exactly. I think that's yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. did I say? Hey zebra, that's going to be the, uh, the only kind <laughs> of feed- the only kind of feedback we'll get about this episode is people saying, "Why on earth does Andy say zebra?" Yeah, it, is it a problem? It's going to be. Pr- believe you me. Potato, potato, zebra, zebra. Yeah, <laughs> zebra. No, no, doesn't sound right. So why are they injuring? What's um, because they're wild animals, but people think they're like horses. So I think that it's just you're yeah. more likely to be injured. So we not domesticated the no, zebra. It's impossible no. to yeah. domesticate a zebra. Oh. They're really. Uh, in fact, there's only one person I found who managed to even slightly domesticate them, and that was Walter Rothschild. Have you heard of him? Oh yes. yeah. He is an amazing man. He was a uh, late 19th century, early 20th century. He yep. was a zoologist naturalist he had the most amazing collections of animals he collected tens of thousands of butterflies he was a Rothschild from the banking dynasty the Rothschilds so he was seriously wealthy yeah he didn't care about any of the banking stuff all he wanted was to collect animals and he had a carriage uh harnessed with four zebras and he rode it along Piccadilly and into the forecourt of Buckingham Palace Oh, I think Pretty I've seen cool. a photo of that. Yes. Yeah, 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 it's a really yeah. fa- it's one of these sort of historical photos that yes. gets <laughs> trotted out a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised that um, we still haven't. It seems to be one of those evolution questions that we haven't solved yet of why they have the black and white. The, my favorite theory, I just can't believe this, is that it cools the zebra down because air might move more quickly over the black uh, bits of skin, which absorb light. 
and then more slowly over the white stripes which reflect it, which might make little convection currents around the zebra to cool it down. I wow. cannot, I cannot <laughs> believe that's true. Well, I, I mean, first of all, I think that God slash Darwin is looking down on the zebra debate <laughs> and going, you guys are overthinking this. <laughs> uh, so I just thought it would be fun. <laughs> I love <laughs> the, the theory that God slash Darwin is looking down right now. Only one of them will be looking down right now <laughs> if no, they're no, right. No, 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 no. In fact, it's, a, it's either both of them or neither. Oh, that's right. Down right. Sorry. Now. So you are right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, it's time for fact number two, and that is Alex. My fact this week is that Agatha Christie was once turned away from a party held in her honour. Nice. I think we've we've all had that. Yeah. (laughs) Was she was she too drunk? No, she was too shy. Actually, that was the problem. (laughs) So this is in April in 1958. Um, The Mousetrap, which is the play in London that uh, is based on the book that she wrote, uh, became the longest running production in the history of British theatre. So most performances ever, 2,239 performances. And there was a big party in the Savoy Hotel. And so she turned up all dressed up and... uh, Went to the party room and the guy at the door didn't recognise her. And she was so shy that she just got very embarrassed and went and sat in the lounge and had a drink by herself for most of the evening. Mm. She'd been asked to turn up early, hadn't she, by Peter Saunders, who was the producer of Mousetrap, who said, avoid the press by turning up early and you can sneak in early. Mm. And um, I think when she did that, she couldn't get in until the party actually started. Oh, so she did make it into the party. She did get into the party, yeah. Because I read an account in the British newspaper archive from the stage newspaper in 1958, and it was an account of the speech that she made and Richard Attenborough actually gave this interview about what she'd said and she just stood up it was one of the shortest speeches in theatre history she said well darlings I think we'll get a few months out of it (laughs) Uh, so yeah Uh. which is weird because at that point she'd already got 10 years out of it um, in 1972, to exacerbate her shyness, there was another party held in her honour because there seemed to be constant parties held in honour of someone who was very shy. It's like a form of torture. Um, but in 1972, uh, she turned up to the party and she forgot her false teeth because she was in her 80s at that point. And so none of the guests were allowed to speak to her except her very closest friends because she didn't want to open her mouth. And did that cure oh. her shyness? <laughs> <laughs> Does it cure your shyness if nobody speaks to you? I suppose it might do, because you, then you have to go and speak to other people. Can you imagine? You're a shy type. You've, you've plucked up the courage to go to your party. You know everyone's going to want to talk to you, and you haven't brought your fucking teeth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's a tough oh, moment. Lady. It's a That's tough terrible. moment. <laughs> so um, I was reading this mousetrap um, uh, play when she died. The rights went over to her grandson, Matthew Pritchard. And there's been this big thing where he's been in a bit of a fight with uh, Wikipedia. Because Wikipedia, often, whenever they put the uh, a novel or anything, they'll often do a really detailed plot analysis of what goes on. And Mousetrap oh. famously has a plot twist right at the end. And it's up there. And so he's been trying to get them to take it down. And it's very funny because even on the Wikipedia, they now acknowledge that he's trying to do it. Um, but so they, he hasn't won. Wikipedia says this is just information. It stays up there. But it's interesting, um, this plot twist, because it's it, the plot twist... Hang on, wait. Itself, are you about to... I'm not going to say it, okay. no. But the plot twist has become famous for being a plot twist. Yes. And so I, I for one, know what the plot twist is because of people saying oh there's this famous plot twist where this happens i've never actually experienced the actual twist and i reckon the majority of people know what the twist is without ever having actually had the twist happen to them 
which uh, is a shame. I a don't know what the twist is, so I'm not really? going to go on the Wikipedia mm. page. That's I so kind of feel like it would be sporting of them to take it down. Well, there is, surprisingly, um, or rather unsurprisingly, on Wikipedia, there's a page you can go to with huge discussions from all the Wikipedians about mm. the attitude they're taking towards spoilers. So that, that sounds like really fun reading. <laughs> it's surprisingly yeah. on a sunny was. Saturday afternoon. <laughs> the, yeah, I mean, if, it depends on the role of an encyclopedia, doesn't it? Is the role of an encyclopedia to tell you everything about you know the ending of all plots? Or, or is the role of an encyclopedia to pique your interest <laughs> so you want to know more? Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's the first one. <laughs> to find out what zebras really are, you'll have to come and see the stage show. <laughs> um, do you know how she described herself? She said she was a sausage machine. <laughs> sausage machine. <laughs> yeah. Why? Yeah. Um, not a sausage party. Vital difference. No, she was. This was at a time of her life when she was writing two books a year. She said, "I'm a sausage machine, a perfect sausage machine." There was one year where I think she wrote seven uh, books, plays, and uh, collections of short stories. Right. Yeah. Insane. So if anything, seven. if anything, she's a mystery novel machine rather than a sausage machine. I think, but I think it was a metaphor rather than her actually just I, describing I what she, she is was. A writer. And that was what made her may, so brilliant yeah, as an author is she it. never, you know, she sometimes would not literally describe yeah. the things she That's was That's what saying. I love about her novels, all those sausage similes. <laughs> yeah. Up all the time. Yeah. Is that the plot twist in The Mousetrap? Yeah. The lead yeah, character is a sausage all along? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was in the drawing room with a sausage. Yeah. <laughs> I like the idea of her at the press conference where she's giving the interview saying, the thing about me is I'm just a sausage machine, a perfect sausage machine and every single journalist trying to suppress their snigger because <laughs> they wrote it down. Is it the Especially case? Especially saying it without any teeth in as well. That's yeah. <laughs> Do you know where she did a load of her writing? On paper? On paper mm. and in Iraq. I don't know this. Really? Oh. Her second husband uh, was an archaeologist and a really eminent archaeologist and um, she uh, she went out and did a load of digs with him. So there are loads of stories happen in you know, exotic archaeology dig sites and that kind of thing. Yeah. Or there are a fair few at least which do and that's why. Yeah. She was a very keen archaeologist wasn't she in the yeah. second part? Like she herself got into it as well yeah. as yeah. her husband. Yeah. And she, said to well, her, she said to her husband there's a sort of famous anecdote where she says oh, I just wish I knew a bit more about this kind of pottery stuff and he says do you realize you know more about this ancient pottery than any other woman alive in the world today because it wasn't really studied by women at the time right you know it was quite a closed shop yeah yeah wow um she if you go to the british museum you can see a bunch of artifacts that he uncovered i think he made a particularly important find in nimrud which is an ancient iraqi city uh i found some a bunch of sort of three thousand year old artifacts and they're in the british museum and because she cleaned all his artifacts you can go and see stuff that's been cleaned by agatha christie that is british so cool. Isn't that cool so the british museum says the reason these have probably been preserved so well over the last hundred years is because they were perfectly cleaned by christie they called her the queen of clean <laughs> they called her the sausage machine <laughs> Queen of clean the sausage machine <laughs> um, I, w- I was looking into other people Who've been turned away or kicked out from their mm. parties yeah. uh, Nirvana kicked out of their own Nevermind release party Wow, yeah. what did they say as they walked away? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they um, they it's, it's really odd though because you read what they did when they got there. Basically, they started tossing around a watermelon, and <laughs> they effectively started a food fight, and they were told to leave the uh, release wow. of their album. That's a pretty hardcore food fight to start throwing an entire watermelon. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I can understand if it was lobbed at someone's face that that <laughs> yeah. might be. Yeah, start with mashed potato or something. Yeah. I got a fact about parties. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There are schools in Japan for how to have a party. 
Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Because um, it's not really the done thing. Because most people live in very small homes, so you don't really have parties where you have loads of people around very much. Mm. So there is this group which has been set up called the Home Party Association, which teaches you how. And there are three levels of certification. First one, you just have to send them about twenty-two quid and pictures of a party that you have thrown. Second one, level two, you have to attend five hours of lectures in how to throw a party and you have to write an essay and that costs about 200 quid. <laughs> the third one uh, costs about 450 quid for all the training and you have to successfully host a party attended by the examiners of the school. Oh my God. Oh. And get this, get this. The failure rate is 90%. Whoa. <laughs> no shit. Any party attended by examiners is going to yeah. be crap. Yeah. By definition, inviting your teachers to a party yeah. <laughs> ruins it. Oh my God. What they should have taken tips from is the party of the century in the 20th century and I'd never heard of this but it's this party that apparently is the party of the century it was in 1951 it was thrown by someone who was known as Charlie who was heir to some great Mexican silver fortune <laughs> and it sounds incredible and uh, it's been remembered in great party history great party law um, as the greatest party ever thrown and so <laughs> <laughs> you said a bunch of stuff there that doesn't exist <laughs> great party law the great party the big law. book of famous parties <laughs> <laughs> mentioned at every party. It's a great encyclopedia of party legend. I never ha I never throw a party without reminding all my guests of the greatest party of the century in 1951. <laughs> if you guys had attended these Japanese lectures, you'd so be what highly was it familiar. Like? What happened at this great party? So this is what happened. It took place in the Palazzo Libia in Venice. Oh, <laughs> um, no. Okay, it sounded good. <laughs> you weren't wrong. Um, it was called the Bal Orientale, or the Bal Oriental, depending on which pronunciation is correct. Um, so and sorry, an oriental ball inside a labia. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> okay. Yeah, The host wore 16-inch platform shoes, so uh, he was <laughs> six foot ten, so he towered above all of his guests. He changed his costume 16 times throughout the evening. Um, and the roof of the place had a garden designed by Dali, and Dali actually did attend. Dali attended and Christian Dior attended, and they came dressed up as each other. That's just a fun little uh, little trick. Um, it was a costume ball, but Orson Welles' costume didn't arrive on time, so he had to wear just a normal suit, which is very em embarrassing well, for Orson. Came as himself. That's quite a good costume for a party. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he should have just claimed he wasn't Orson Welles. <laughs> <laughs> um, Daisy Fellows was there, who was a very famous, uh, I think, journalist um, or socialite at the time, and she it was the first time anyone had ever worn leopard print, so she started the trend for it was wearing the first leopard time. print in the in the West. So it was the first time, you know, a wow. Western person had worn leopard print. This party is sounding better and better. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it? So many people threatened to be Cleopatra that it had to be up to the host to settle who was going to come as Cleopatra. to be Cleopatra. <laughs> <laughs> Just anonymous phone calls. Someone <laughs> going to be Cleopatra at your party. <laughs> Um, Americans who hadn't been invited because it was so famous it was happening uh, they sailed over and arrived in the Lido nearby in their yachts just in the desperate hope of getting an invitation so there were all these wealthy people's yachts parked in what nearby coastline on? and Lidos just in the hope that they get it doesn't it sound incredible it sounds I've never heard of it. but who's Charlie? Just a super rich guy. <laughs> no one really knows anything more about him. That's amazing. That's very cool. It sounds kind of Great Gatsby-esque. Yeah. So Great Gatsby. What was the period of... Was that it's correct time-wise? It's slightly later Gatsby than that. Gatsby is 20s, yeah. 20s yeah. really. Well, um, Truman Capote threw a party as well, which uh, was to 
tie in with the publication of In Cold Blood. And that apparently uh, in America was the big party uh, of 1966. Um, yeah, so um, it was dubbed The Night Capote Made 500 Friends and 15,000 Enemies because <laughs> the invitations were so coveted. The idea that y- he was saying no to people to the, come yeah. to this party created more enemies than uh, than the people who Uh-oh. ended up coming, liking him. And everyone wore masks. So it was, you know... No one who knew who anyone was there. <laughs> Frank Sinatra was there, apparently. Lauren Bacall, apparently. No one knows. They had a mask on. The only person without a mask was Andy Warhol, who just decided not to wear a mask because it's so arty. Oh, and yeah. yeah. That's, that's like when uh, Brian Cranston went to uh, Comic Con and he wore a plastic mask with his own face on and no one recognized him. That's <laughs> really good. It's yeah. funny. Are we sure Jim and Capote didn't just invite a few thousand randomers off the street, put masks on them, take photos, and then point at the various photos going, that's Frank Sinatra there? (laughs) Skepticism from the woman who told us this cock and bull story about the greatest party (laughs) in 1951 ever told. (laughs) I just don't like being faced with this Capote competition. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Salvador Dali once said, I am never alone. I am used to being with Salvador Dali always, and that, for me, is a permanent party. Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Chuzinski. My fact this week is that different species of dolphins babysit each other's children. Um, Mm. So (laughs) this is some research that was done a while back and reported in the Marine Mammal Science Journal, and it's about bottlenose dolphins and spotted dolphins and how they work together, and they do loads of stuff together. And one of the things they do together is leave their children with each other. So when dolphins dive deep to hunt squid, for instance, their kids, young dolphins, can't dive that deep, so they leave them with someone to care for them. And these two species, it's the first instance of species um, properly cooperating in this way. It would be great if you could get an animal babysitter. Just for your kids. What kind yeah. of animal would you pick to babysit Presumably your not dolphin. Not ever either. But <laughs> yeah. Well, dolphins are very well qualified. If you give the kids armbands and drop them in the sea, then I get a spotted dolphin to look at them. They're, I don't, they're well, a bit sexy towards any human <laughs> they come into contact <laughs> with, aren't they? Dan speaks now, from come personal on. experience. <laughs> I don't know. Anytime I've heard about people with dolphins, there yeah, always there is, is a sort of come. weird humping going on. Yeah. I feel like you want to tell a sexy dolphin no, story. No, no, no. I just, I just, anytime I've read about dolphins. Oh, okay. <laughs> but then maybe I shouldn't be Googling that, <laughs> those particular keywords. Yeah, I think you're hanging out in the wrong section of so the uh, library. Do you know that dolphin nipples are secret? In that even they don't know about the secret. They're, they're they're hidden. They have these abdominal slits, and the the nipples are kind of inside the slits, or the the mammary mammary slits they're called. And also the penis uh, of the male dolphin is the same. It's in a, a slit, and it sort of it can poke out, but it can retract within the slit as well. Mm. So it's not how convenient external. Yeah, I it's read an article title that was called "Dolphins Have Scary Hand-Like Penises." And did you read that as well? Well, I did, but I've read a debunking of it. Ah. But you say, what? Well, what have you? No, I, ju- I just they have a retractable penis, um, and the idea was that they use it uh, to find things if they're near <laughs> if they're near a sort of a surface area. They'll use it like humans in the dark use hands to find their way around things. Oh, right. so it's not <laughs> I'm afraid that's not quite true. Right, okay. um, I've read a thing by a, a science writer called Justin Gregg, who's a bit of an expert on these matters. Yep. And he's, there's a myth that dolphins have prehensile penises, and that doesn't really make any sense because mm. prehensile, like prehensile tails, which can be used to grip and grab things and wrap around things. Yeah. Um, it, they can extend it and they can retract it and they can bend it in different directions to help with mating. Mm. Um, but they probably can't 
pick up keys, for example. Yeah, but that's enough. You could give someone directions with that kind of. You, you could yeah, give someone yeah. directions with it if you really tried hard. Yeah. Oh, so that's and not you, too far off. It's that, not too far off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so this this is an interesting thing. They have such control because dolphins, uh, like whales, they have pelvises because they evolved from land animals. Mm-hmm. which got bored of being on land, went back into the sea, right? So all the muscles which attach to their penis and give them this control, so left, right, in, out, that kind of thing, mm. um, they are directly attached to the pelvic bone. And one scientist said it's like operating a trick kite where you pull two strings and pulling left and right makes it go in a loop-de-loop. But I don't think... Wow. That's quite a specialised... I don't think dolphin penises can do a loop-de-loop. You're, yeah. you're talking about the secret nipples. Have you, it's really interesting <laughs> how the babies drink the mother's milk. So they have a tongue that they can turn into like a little straw. You know when you kind of like loop your tongue over and some people can do that, yeah. Oh yeah. Like that. They do that. And their tongue has little fingery things on the end that kind of go into the nipple and act a bit like a zip, like they kind of latch on to wow. make it a little bit of a seal. Because it is difficult because they're drinking milk underwater, so it's liquid and liquid. Um, oh yeah, well otherwise it would seep out. Yeah, exactly. And it's I got see. the consistency of milkshake apparently in the milk. And um, and yeah, it lasts about five to ten seconds. Mm. But it smells really it smells of fish. Probably imagine a, a milkshake that smells of fish. I imagine everything <laughs> smells of fish in the ocean. But can't they only taste salt? Ooh, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I think that is true. They lost all their other taste buds. They, they lost, and they lost the sense of smell. They used to have it when they were on um, land, mm. and then obviously in water, you don't need to smell the air. And then their nostrils mm. moved above their head to become the blowhole. I just, I want to know about the middle of that process where yeah. the nostrils were moving north. The awkward yeah. adolescent stage where they had their nostrils <laughs> on their forehead. <laughs> yeah. The, the unicorn look. Yeah. yeah. It's bizarre, isn't it? It's so bizarre. Um, um, you know, dolphins' grandmothers sometimes feed them. So, and they employ wet nurses, I think. It's underwater. They're all wet nurses. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, there's a theory that um, the male dolphins n- uh, can tell when female dolphins are pregnant because they take. We know they take a special interest in females when they're pregnant. And there's a theory that's because they have capability to use ultrasound, so that they can do ultrasound <laughs> no, without having no. to make an appointment at a sonogram. What? So do they? Like, do they? see them and go oh it's a boy <laughs> like, don't tell I me I was trying not to look <laughs> I feel like we quite in dolphin esque that would be quite rude actually to look at someone else's don't look inside my wife's stomach female, yeah. yeah it's like having x-ray specs all the time yeah imagine just go, for babies imagine taking your wife to the ultrasound and it's just a dolphin yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be like oh great we're in good hands <laughs> what he's doing um, except they're not because uh, we, we have this impression that dolphins are really nice but um, some dolphins some male bottlenose dolphins kill newborn calves uh which is not nice why do they do that they do it it's it's really grim actually they do it because it frees up the females for mating because if if a female has a newborn calf uh, she will be looking after the calf for some years she won't be interested in in, in having any more offspring uh whereas if uh if the, the males have killed off the uh, the calf, then within a few months, she might be uh, ready to mate again. Do they have to? I don't know if we would know this, but do they have to do it sort of behind while the mother's away on a trip? No, the, the <laughs> on a trip. <laughs> <laughs> um, on a holiday. Well, babysitting's going on. No, yeah. Presumably. <laughs> they, they just kind of mob the mother. And so the mother will try and d- protect her calf and often right. will succeed in protecting her calf from the males and get away with them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then the mother's fine just to mate with that dolphin again. They get over it, don't they? Pretty fast in the animal world. They've got to procreate and they it's don't have much time. It's not a healthy family situation. Yeah, it's, it's not. 
No, they, no, I think actually, I think bottlenose dolphins might be the bastards of the dolphin world really? because actually, this initial fact was about bottlenose and spotted dolphins um, looking after each other's children. But the only instance they found is of spotted dolphins looking after bottlenose dolphins' children, not the other way around. Mm. And actually, there's quite a lot of instances, as well as them cooperating with each other species-wise. Bottlenose dolphins will just force their way into a group of spotted dolphins and start shagging the women in them. And, and there's nothing that the spotteds can do because they're half the size. Yes. Yeah. They yeah. just go take their women. Yeah. So actually, they're kind of bullies, Bot- bottlenose bullies. Well, there's evidence in uh, marine research centres that kind of manage large areas of water with lots of species in that when dolphins get bored of all the human toys and things, that they use baby sharks as volleyballs, which is definitely bullying. Well, that's how that, that's how dolphins uh, kill baby dolphin calves, uh, is they, they toss them out of the water or they will hold them under the water because dolphins yeah, need drown. to come up for it. Yeah. Have you guys heard of a wolfin? It's a whale dolphin, half whale, half dolphin. It's amazing. How big is it? Is it a massive dolphin? It was or? in between the size of the two. Because oh. it was a false killer whale, I think they're slightly smaller than uh, killer whales. It must be so bad for it, though. It's just so awkward. Like, who do you hang out with? You're way too small for the whales, and you're way too big for the dolphins. Sell you it, to, sell it to Pixar. Sell it to Pixar, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, time for our final fact of the show, and that's my fact. My fact this week is that Sylvester Stallone's mum is a bum reader. <laughs> Bit harsh. That's no way to speak of her. <laughs> this, this is something she is very proud about, according to her website, which she has taken down, and we had to search very hard to verify. Um, <laughs> this is the kind of fact you get when James Harkin is away for a week <laughs> for the <laughs> podcast. This is what slips through the net. I know. This is my only chance. <laughs> this is called rumpology. And a, and Why didn't po- they call it astrology? Oh, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Okay, so for anyone who hasn't heard of rumpology or astrology, the newly if, if coined... If indeed those people exist, surely everyone's <laughs> familiar with the arts. <laughs> what they do is rumpologists look at people's bums and they make predictions off the back of the creases, off the back of any <laughs> How interesting... many creases are there? There's one. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> do, you have, do you have to spread? Like, how much detail is this? Well, it depends how much, how far into the future you want to see, <laughs> Alex. <laughs> Your future is very dark. <laughs> but yeah, so I was reading about this. I, I actually found out about this because um, I was emailing an author called David Bramwell, who wrote an incredible book called Number Nine Bus to Utopia. And he's also the um, maker of a podcast and a live show called The Auditorium. And so he puts on these nights and he had a rumpologist speak at one of his events. And I thought, what the hell's a rumpologist? Googled it, found out that Jackie Stallone, Sylvester Stallone's <laughs> mum, has done it. And um, she's done it to the point where even on her website, again, this is quite hard to verify because it's been taken down. Um, but <laughs> suggestions, sort of little echoes of a past website through reading on Reddit and so on suggests this, that she used to charge $600 and you would send a printed copy of your bum to her and she would read your bum digitally as it were i uh, love that a printed copy of your <laughs> bum how how does one print one's well, bum now with 3d printing you c- probably can print your bum you probably can, you can oh accurate. i think that's was the perfect excuse for all the office parties whenever yeah. someone yeah. was caught yeah. sitting on the yeah. <laughs> on the copy no, machine. no no i want to know about my business prospect for the next year 
<laughs> but according to Wikipedia, Jackie Stallone um, has claimed to predict the outcome of presidential elections and the Oscar winners uh, by reading the bottoms of her two pet Doberman pincers. So doesn't he works on animals as well? Yeah, she's reading. She's wow. reading animal bus- bums. And, and it um, doesn't seem. It doesn't. So it's one thing to send a picture of your own bum and get your own future, but for some reason these two dogs have the future presidential elections in them instead. What I really Sometimes like. they're just born lucky. <laughs> like, what are the odds of her having those dogs as well? Yeah, yeah amazing. Yeah. Um, Dan, you briefly read out from the Wikipedia on rumpology just yep. there, um, which is surprisingly restrained, actually, in what it says about this ancient art. Um, but I did <laughs> want to read out one uh, paragraph from it. Uh, the American astrologer Jackie Stallone claims that rumpology is known to have been practiced in ancient times by the Babylonians, the Indians, and the ancient Greeks and Romans, although she provides no evidence for this claim. (laughs) Stallone has been largely responsible for the supposed, quote marks, revival of rumpology in modern (laughs) times. It's the most skeptical paragraph I've ever read about anything. The idea that's going in and out of vogue as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I wonder that the ancient Romans would have um, spent their time on it. Just to clarify how you print a bum, because I just feel like people are going to have been wondering. Yeah. And she does tell you, did you see how what she said you can do? No. You can henna your bum, and then you sit on a piece of papyrus, she says, because I guess she's trying to enhance the ancient origins <laughs> of this practice. <laughs> <laughs> so you sit your henna, newly wet henna ass on a bit of papyrus, and then you blow it dry or whatever and send that off to her, and she can read the imprints. She doesn't even need the physical That print. is fantastic. It's, it's, like, it's so like a potato prints, but it's, with your ass. It's very skilled of her not to need the original bum I mean, it's amazing yeah. isn't it incredible yeah i guess that's what you pay your 600 dollars for don't you <laughs> <laughs> where do you get papyrus these days is that a re- is that in ryman's is that readily that's, available it's, yeah you're yeah. right it's hard it's next to the 80 gsm uh, it's papyrus. <laughs> <laughs> papyrus is really good though i mean it lasts a lot longer than our paper well that means all the paper from our time of this current bit of history is going to go except for these bits of papyrus that just have arse prints <laughs> on them <laughs> Little is known of the civilization of the early 21st century, <laughs> but they accurately predicted every single thing that has come to pass. So here's the thing. The, the ancient Babylonians uh, also believed that you could predict the future, um, and they believed it was by the liver. That was the part of the body they thought was really significant. Mm-hmm. And But how do you know which bit of the liver means what? And they had a model liver. So oh. you would kill a sheep, get out, it, get a special priest, get uh, the liver out and um, he had a special wooden liver or there were even some uh, special bronze livers and it says look if this bit is discolored this way then you're an alcoholic then you yeah Yeah, it's hepatology uh, the no sorry not hepatology I'm sorry that is the medical study (laughs) of the liver Um, it's not hepatology I think that's going to be the thing that gets most feedback and not my zebra pronunciation earlier I'm not getting liver surgery in the next 10 years I'm going to correct it right now it's hepatoscopy, um, and it's a branch of haruspicy, which is which was the yeah Babylonian and Etruscan study of various organs, which spelt out your future in some way. But yeah, it was really popular, wasn't it? Uh, a common way of of telling the future. And in fact, an example, very famous example of haruspicy was um, in Caesar, Julius Caesar. So do you know the way the Ides of March was predicted? Was not by his because bum, of assuming. this practice. <laughs> um, the Beware the Ides of March, famously, that Julius Caesar was told to do. And he was told this by a haruspicist, who is someone who looks at the entrails of animals to tell the future. So I think it was the entrails of a sheep which informed the haruspicist that to tell Caesar ah. to beware the Ides of March. And that was recorded by, I think, Suetonius. So here's the thing. Um, 
Isaac Newton himself did a lot of future predicting. Yes. And we, we you know, he d- was very interested in uh, learning about the nature of God. It's, it just, it's so contrary to the modern image of him. D- he devised a chronology of the, all the great events before his life, and then he did a chronology of the future as well. Yeah. So he predicted a thing called the Tribulation of the Jews, and he predicted that a thousand years of peace are going to begin in 2370. Uh, and part of it was based on the life cycle of the locust. I mean, it was seriously mm. out there. No, stuff. but it, that's also quite scientific in a way. The idea of taking a load of data and trying to find trends based on kind of things that happen. It's no, it, that's the kind of thing that conspiracy theorists do. It's not scientific. It's taking a load of data and making it find the trends that you want it to find. I think, or find. And there is it's a not finding edge evidence to looking, making f- future predictions on, say, yeah. you know, what's going to happen with climate change and global warming based on past data. Definitely. Like that is science. Also, mm. there's, there's good ways and bad ways to do it, but it's two sides of the same coin. Yeah. I was reading about one of Thailand's leading fortune tellers oh, yeah. whose name is Luck Rakanithes. And he says that the fact that his name is Luck, uh, which means luck in English, is complete coincidence. There was an interview with him recently um, where he he runs this system now, which is more like a call center where people just literally <laughs> ring in and they get get their horoscopes or they get told what lottery numbers to, to choose or whatever. <laughs> and he's, he's a multi-multi-millionaire, so yeah. hundreds of thousands of people call him every month. And um, the way he did it was he just memorized a bunch of astrology books when he was a child and then regurgitates it. But he spoke to Channel 4, I think, in the last couple of years. And Channel 4 asked him how he finds it, just reading people's futures and telling them what's going to happen to them and he said i want to change my life i'm not kidding i'm so bored of going places with people shouting teacher look at my palm tell me my fortune he's basically completely well i don't think he ever believed it but he's now gone these people are all idiots who are asking me what's going to happen to them and he acknowledges there's no point in asking me if you're going to get rich you need to get rich using your own brains i can't tell you what's going to happen to you you actually have to just go out there and make it happen for yourself he should sell that device over the phone to people. Yeah. Oh, I th- perhaps he is, yeah. I don't Your think he'd make much money. Press one for an angry rant. <laughs> <laughs> press two. <laughs> okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on Schreiberland. Andy at Andrew Hunter M. Alex at Alex Bell underscore. And Chazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep. Or you can go to at qi podcast. That's our group account. Or you can go to no such thing as a fish.com where we have all of our previous episodes. We'll see you again next week. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>